Hey, it's NPR's Book of the Day. I'm Andrew Limbaugh. When news came out that Salman Rushdie was attacked on stage, it was scary thinking about not just that this person might die, but also what it meant for what Rushdie symbolizes when it comes to freedom of expression. But it's easy to worry and fret about those things and kind of forget that Rushdie is a massively impressive writer, which is what we're going to be focusing on today. In a bit, we'll hear him talk about his book, Two Years, Eight Months, and 28 Nights. But first, back in 2017, he wrote a book called The Golden House about an Indian man who moves his family to New York. And there's a moment in this interview between him and NPR's Ari Shapiro where they start talking about disillusionment, both in this country and in human beings as a whole, and what, despite all that, keeps Rushdie writing. The author Salman Rushdie has set his books all over the world. His most famous novels, Midnight's Children and The Satanic Verses, take place in India and the UK, both countries where Rushdie has lived. His new book is mostly set in the city he now calls home, New York. It's called The Golden House, and its themes are deeply American. One character says, Your country is young. One thinks differently when one has millennia behind one. You have not even 250 years. I asked Salman Rushdie whether that youthfulness shapes his view of the U.S. It's a very interesting thing, having been brought up in one very ancient country, India, and then having lived in a kind of reasonably old country, England, and then to come to a new country, and they all have their their slightly different characteristics. For people who spend their whole lives in the United States, I'm not sure that we feel how our youthfulness as a country affects us. Bringing an outside perspective, how would you describe the way that shapes what the United States is? It's just the weight of history. You know, I mean, America clearly has some very heavy and even dark aspects to its history. But it's not like having a couple of thousand years or 3,000 years of history. The burden of history is greater. And so one of the things that happens in this book is that people from an old country, that's to say, you know, an, an Indian family, a wealthy Indian family, in a way trying to shed the burden of their own history comes to a country in which the subject of reinvention of the self is completely central. Every, everybody does it. People come through Ellis Island and change their names. People move from the, the Midwest to the big city and try and be new people. And it seemed that appropriate for people from an old country trying to get rid of the shadow of the past to come to somewhere where it's possible to be new. Is it really possible, though? That's the question that the book seems to keep returning to. Some characters yeah. believe it is. Others believe it's not. Ultimately, can you escape your past? Well, I mean, I think in a novel, you can't. You know, I, think, <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think in a novel, if a family arrives in Manhattan, obviously concealing some very dark secret... <laughs> You know, uh, um, uh, the secret it, will come out. It's pretty clear that the secret is going to blow up in their face at some point. Yeah. In real life, I think people do manage to leave the past behind and, and start again. You know, I think New York is full of those stories of families, whether Jewish families from Eastern Europe or nowadays immigrants from all over the world, you know, uh, come here and make new lives and seem to do it quite successfully. But at the same time, as one character in this book puts it, the trouble with trying to escape yourself is that you bring yourself along for the ride. Yeah. I mean, that is, of course, the tragedy of the novel, that this family, you know, Nero Golden, the patriarch, which, of course, not his real name, but the name that he takes, clearly has a lot of luggage. He's somebody who, as we begin to discover as the novel unfolds, has had quite a shady past. And in trying to escape that past, along with his three adult sons, he is guilty, I guess, of a little bit of 
um, innocence. You know, he really thinks that by coming to America, he can he can go beyond the reach of the, well, to put it bluntly, gangsters who might be interested in in harming him. But um, sometimes you underestimate the opposition, you know, and I think I think he does. The books that you write have always felt connected to myths and legends. And this story almost feels like a fairy tale. It's very archetypal. There is a sort of king in his castle with three sons. There's a kind of wicked stepmother figure. There's almost a curse on the family. Are these archetypes just part of the water that you swim in, or do you choose one to work with? Is this conscious or is it automatic? No, I think it's just the way the stuff comes out. I do have a lot of mythology in my head, both Indian and kind of Greek and Roman, and that tends to spill into the characters quite often. And in this case, obviously, these characters who rename themselves after characters from ancient Greece and Rome are very aware of their own self-myth-making. They're trying to create themselves as kind of heroic or even quasi-divine figures. But there's a gap between that self-aggrandizing naming and the reality of their lives. When you take a step back and observe that the novel you've written does follow an archetype, do you think to yourself, oh, well, how lovely, I'm part of this ancient tradition? Or do you think, oh, well, damn, I'm telling the same story humans have been telling themselves for millennia? Oh, we all tell each other the same stories all the time. The question is whether you tell the story in a new way. This is actually the question that I have most wanted to ask you. Your narrator, this filmmaker, at one point asks, why even try to understand the human condition if humanity revealed itself as grotesque, dark, not worth it? How do you answer that question for yourself as a writer? Well, it's, it's obviously a tough question because it carries with it a sense of despair. And I think uh, at that moment, René, looking at America, is very disillusioned with his own country, very disillusioned with the choices it's making and, and with what's happening in it. And he asks himself, you know, what is it that, that I'm a part of? And is it worth being a part of? Is it worth writing about? But I think clearly he, he himself doesn't fully think that because he ends up making his movie and he ends up, in a way, narrating this novel. But does that mean that humanity is not grotesque, dark, and not worth it? Or does it just mean that it's worth writing about anyway? Well, I think it means both things, actually. Uh, that even if it were grotesque, dark, and not worth it, it would be worth writing about. Uh, and, but what I, in a way, the, what the novel tries to present is a world that's not grotesque. I say a real, I think, credible world, you know, a believable city in a believable time in which real characters, real human beings are having their lives. But then when you ascend to the level of public life, you find grotesques and cartoons. And so in writing, do you find that humanity is not dark, that humanity is in fact worth it? Or do yeah, you write I, in spite of the darkness? I think human beings are the most interesting thing I know about. They're inexhaustibly interesting. And I think one of the great beauties of the novel as a form is that it shows us that human nature is the great constant. Human nature is the same in all places, in all times, in all languages. And that makes it the great subject of, of any writer's life, just to try and explore this vast ocean of human beings. There's a wonderful line near the end of Saul Bellow's novel, The Adventures of Augie Marsh, in which he describes himself as a Columbus of the near at hand. 
hmm. you know, I mean, setting out to explore the the terra incognita, he says, the unknown land that that spreads out from every gaze, you know. And I think that's that's sort of what the writer is. He's looking. He's a Columbus of the near at hand. You know, we're we're exploring the the world that is not across an ocean, but that is outside our front door. Salman Rushdie, the new novel is called The Golden House. What a privilege to talk to you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Rushdie's book, Two Years, Eight Months, and 28 Nights, is about jinns and monsters and ghosts and all these big, fantastical elements. And in this interview from 2015 with NPR Scott Simon, Rushdie has this great line about balancing magic and the supernatural with reason and realism. He goes, you need the ability to dream and you need the ability to think. Salman Rushdie has a new novel, Two Years, Eight Months, and 28 Nights seems to transpose Arabian Nights of long ago into a modern-day New York City, which gets overturned by a thunderstorm that upsets the law of the universe with myth and magic. The jinn have come back after an 800-year exile and create a world in which a down-to-earth man, a gardener, in fact, walks on air, a spurned wife shoots lightning from her fingertips, and a graphic novelist's characters turn to flesh. The world is in the grip of a long-term struggle between fear-instilled superstition and unmagical reason. Two years, eight months, and 28 nights is Salman Rushdie's first novel for adults in seven years. And Salman Rushdie, who was knighted in 2007 and has won the Booker Prize and written dozens of best-selling books, joins us from New York. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Yeah, not dozens, but a dozen anyway. All right. Well, I, I, I try <laughs> and err on the side of graciousness. Thanks for the magic realism. <laughs> <laughs> Which nicely brings up, so who are these jinn? They are, in the ordinary English word, genies, but I've gone rather more deeply into their nature. They're, they're kind of dark, mischievous, supernatural beings who are really interested in human life because it seems to me, in the end, more interesting and varied and diverse than their own lives. But it's their nature to screw things up, and so they show up to do that. Mm. The the story actually begins eight, I guess, eight centuries ago with a twelfth century philosopher named I hope I pronounced this correctly Ibn Rushd. Yes, who who was a real person, who, a real person known yeah. in the West as Averroes, a great Aristotelian philosopher in Arab Spain, mm-hmm. and the person after whom my father changed our family name. He admired him so much that he changed the name to Rushdie to reflect his admiration for for Ibn Rushd. Could we fairly call him by today's standards a reform Muslim? Yes. I mean, he was somebody who was one of the people who believed that you should incorporate principles of reason and logic and science, broad-mindedness, into the world of religion. And and he had adversaries, you know, as, as people still do. So forgive me, but when there was the fatwa placed on your head, they 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 got the right name, didn't they? they? I'm afraid they did get the right because, in fact, one of the things that happened to him eight and a half centuries ago is that he fell foul of the religious fanatics of his time. He was a very eminent man in Cordova, which was the capital of Arab Spain. He was the court physician to the sultan and a famous philosopher. But he fell foul of the then fanatics and was actually thrown out of his job and exiled. And uh, he had his books burned. So there are things we have in common beyond the name. The Ibn Rushd believes that I think the phrase is murderous ignoramuses are taking over the world. 
people who just want to forbid things. Well, I think we live in a kind of strange world, don't we, in which that's becoming all too common. I mean, I think this is a kind of wild fantasy, but I think one of the things about wild fantasy is that if it's going to have any real meaning to readers, it's got to be, in fact, about reality, you know. And I think this book, which is about crazy stuff, you know, it's about gins turning into monsters and surging up from the depths of New York Harbor to eat the Staten Island Ferry. So it's not exactly what you'd call a naturalistic novel. But at the heart of it is a desire to create a kind of vision arising out of what we see happening all around us in the world. May I ask, do you you move around pretty freely now? Oh, yeah. No, no, it's been good. I think it's got to the point where you have to stop asking me (laughs) because it's been like 16 years since it's been okay. I ask because this is a novel that uh, I suppose could upset some people. Oh, I don't know. Everything I write upsets somebody. You know, I think that, you know, upsetting people, it's an age in which everyone is upset all the time. <laughs> you know, all you have to do is look at the Internet. It's full of people screaming at other people for saying things they don't like. So I think, you know, we have to just turn that sound off and turn away from that, that unpleasant noise and just get on with doing what we do. You know, I think this is a funny book. I mean, a sense of humor is a useful tool when reading my work. The Jinnah are... Um a randy bunch, aren't they? Yes, I am afraid this is my fault. In the literature of the jinn, there's a little of it, but there isn't a whole lot. I just decided that they needed one characteristic, which was very exaggerated and kind of funny. And so I made them have sex all the time, just all the time, inexhaustibly, forever. I've always been a little shy of writing about sex. You know, If you look at my work, most of the acts of love are off stage. You know, they're, they're, they're not described in kind of lubricious detail. This time I thought, well, the, the way to write about sex is to treat it as comical and absurd yeah. and write about it as comedy. And so, yeah, the, the jinn do have sex all the time, but it's ridiculous sex. And one of the reasons why they like coming down here where we all are is that we have much more interesting lives because we do things other than have sex. Yeah. So here you have this malevolent force that is in love with human beings, but its nature is to create trouble. And I mean, one of the things that happens in the book is that there are actually the, the, the main female jinn character actually falls in love with human beings and, and becomes their defender and yeah. champion against, if you like, against her own kind. Not to give anything away, but towards the end of this novel, reason rules the land. Well, you know, one of the things that the book is about is about a kind of conflict between reason and unreason. And and I didn't want it to be a simple good-bad opposition mm-hmm. because that's boring, you know, and two-dimensional. So even that moment when what I would consider to be a good outcome, which is that a world of tolerance and good sense and reason and moderation, et cetera, comes into being, there's also things wrong with that. I mean, for example, it's it's quite dull. <laughs> you say well I mean I think I really, I love this phrase so much you say this is the price we pay for peace prosperity tolerance understanding yeah no such thing as a free lunch it reminded me you must of course know that Oscar Wilde is it in the picture of Dorian Gray brute reason can be quite unbearable yes the, the book has an a frontispiece which is a famous picture by Goya the sleep of reason brings forth monsters and the interesting thing about that he says Goya as a caption to that picture is that what he means to say is that when reason and imagination are separated, 
then fancy can bring forth evils. But when they are united, then wonderful things can follow from that. And I think that's, if you like, a definition of what gets called magic realism, that you need, you need both things. You need the ability to dream and you need the ability to think. Salman Rushdie, his new novel, Two Years, Eight Months, and 28 Nights. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. And that's it for this week on NPR's Book of the Day. If you want more, you can sign up for our newsletter at npr.org slash newsletter slash books. I'm Andrew Limbong. The podcast is produced by Nino Rao with help from Mason Tran and edited by Megan Sullivan. Our founding editor is Petra Mayer. The show elements for this week were produced and edited by Melissa Gray, Andrew Craig, Rena Advani, Phil Harrell, Ian Bior, Sarah Handel, Courtney Dorning, Erica Ryan, Sam Greenglass, Julie Myers, Gemma Waters, and Martha Ann Overland. Beth Donovan is our managing editor. Thanks for listening. 